Hello, this is Don Carter. Welcome to our brand new Internet of the Mind podcast. Thanks for joining us. The Internet of the Mind is about the role our subconscious mind plays in constructing the world in ways that best suit our internal functioning and how we can change our internal functioning at the biological level in order to improve our external functioning, bringing more serenity and success into our lives. The Internet of the Mind podcast is a new way for me to deliver information and tools in a way that's easily consumable by our clients and website visitors. We all know how much the smartphone has changed the world. Some of us like to sit at a computer or laptop, while others use only their cell phones these days. And with our busy lives, it's not difficult to see why that is. So this is one reason we're doing the podcasting. We continue to support all the other ways that we deliver our information and tools, including the Internet of the Mind blog, the Serenity Cafe Academy, the Oasis at Serenity Cafe, and our primary website, serenitycreationsonline.com. After 10 years as a therapist, in 2002, I went into private practice. That was 20 years ago. So this is our 20th anniversary on the Internet. I initially put that first website up in order to provide tools and resources for my clients to use in between sessions. So some of you have been with me that entire time. I want to thank you for your support and for your patience during my learning curve. We've come a long way since 2002. We hope these resources have been helpful. To those of you who are new, welcome and feel free to contact us anytime you have comments or questions or feedback. We definitely appreciate all the feedback we can get. Now, one more bit of exciting news that we are happy to be celebrating as well. Ten years ago, I published the first book in my Thawing the Iceberg series. So we're celebrating two milestone anniversaries in the same year. Thaw, Freedom from Frozen Feelings, is now ten years old, and I'm ten years wiser. As part of that celebration, I intend to give Thaw a complete makeover. I will be releasing the second edition sometime this year by the grace of God. I've learned a lot in the past 10 years, and much of it is going to be included in that book, as well as on this Substack and this new podcast. Having said all that, let's get on with today's episode. The neural networks of our brain and central nervous system are comparable to, but infinitely more sophisticated than the fiber optic network connecting millions of computers together in a single network, one that we have come to know as the Internet. One main difference is that instead of millions of computers, our brain has up to 100 billion computers called neurons connected together in a biological network that would put AT&T to shame. And just like the internet, our brains have networks embedded in networks, embedded in networks, and so on. A neural network is a cluster of neurons connected together to form a database of encoded information containing such things as thoughts, feelings, beliefs, programmed reactions, emotions, and even physiological data. As I've already mentioned, neural networks are the actual biological location of change. Change does not take place without the rewiring of existing neural connections or the creation of entirely new ones in a process called synaptic pruning. We learned about that in our video on neuroplasticity in the core courses section of the Internet of the Mind. We call these biological changes learning something new. 
and it matters not if it's good or bad learning. Sooner or later, the new learning moves from inside physical changes, those neuronal connections, to outside physical changes, our actual behavior. This is why we can literally become what we think about most of the time. Unfortunately, that works both ways. If we frequently ruminate about depressive or obsessive thoughts, we are building a neurological database for depression or obsession, and we can experience everything that goes with that. If we think of each brain cell or neuron as a computer, and a neuron's dendrites and axons as the fiber optics, then try to fathom this. There are up to 100 billion neurons in our brain. Each neuron has to up to 100,000 dendrites, making over 100 trillion constantly changing connections. This is according to John Rattay, MD, author of A User's Guide to the Brain. The neuron and its thousands of neighbors send out roots and branches, the axons and dendrites, in all directions which intertwine to form an interconnected tangle with 100 trillion constantly changing connections. There are more possible ways to connect the brain's neurons than there are atoms in the universe. The connections guide our bodies and behaviors, even as every action we take physically modifies their patterns. Thanks to sharp imaging technology and some brilliant research, we now have proof that network development is a continuous, unending process. Axons and dendrites and their connections can be modified up to a point, strengthened even, and perhaps even regrown. Again, this is from John Rattay's A User's Guide to the Brain, page 20. Now, each network has a function. We have simple networks for daily routines like how to tie our shoes or how to brush our teeth or how to shave, and more complex networks for such things as how to do love or relationships, how to perform various duties at work, how to drive a car, how to read, who I am, my belief systems, Neural networks are why we don't have to relearn everything. Imagine having to relearn the alphabet every time you want to read a book. Here's a neural network demonstration. Please cross your arms in a comfortable position across your chest. Got it? You've just accessed your arm-crossing neural network, a small cluster of brain cells connected together and programmed for this behavior. Now take a look and notice exactly how they are crossed. Got it? Okay, great. Now try to cross them in exactly the opposite way. You probably noticed that the first way is comfortable and automatic. You don't even have to think about it, but the new way is uncomfortable if you're able to do it at all. Most people experience a momentary confusion. Others freeze up totally and can't do it at all. That's because the new uncomfortable way is new behavior for which you do not yet have a network. You could create a new network for doing it the new way, but it would take a few weeks of discipline and repetition. This is why changing habits and behaviors can be difficult. It's simply easier to do it the automatic way that we're programmed to do it. To learn more about this, let's stop here and take a look at the four stages of learning something new. With concentration, dedication, and discipline, it only takes several weeks of effort to feel like a new behavior is becoming part of you, or second nature. Dr. Caroline Leaf, one of my favorite neuroscientists, says it takes about 63 days. 
So practicing that behavior over and over again with repetition makes it easier and easier. They say practice makes perfect. Add intensity to that and you'll make that process go quicker. Seeing the improvement in competence and skill or getting good at a new behavior can add that intensity to the experience. And with enough repetition, soon it becomes automatic. This is because we're building the neural circuitry to go with it. When this happens, the new behavior drops beneath the surface of awareness and is taken over by the subconscious mind. That is, it becomes an automatic program, otherwise known as an implicit memory network. And remember, the mind and body are connected, so while the command center may be in the brain, the neural circuitry goes down into the body and tells the muscles what to do and when to do it. Again, remember the two ways to burn a network into your neurology is through intensity and repetition. So if you want to improve at playing the piano, what do you have to do? That's right, practice, practice, and then practice some more. A good example of this is Eric Clapton. He started playing a guitar early in his childhood. Some of us now believe he's become one with the guitar. Learning as it relates to self-preservation, such as the survival skills and developmental tasks of childhood, is accomplished at the subconscious level. But the learning process for information related to self-actualization or growth mode requires conscious effort and self-discipline. This learning process can be boiled down into transforming explicit memory into implicit memory. In other words, growing a new neural network. There are four stages one must go through in order to learn a new behavior or routine. The first one is unconscious incompetence. Before people even become aware that they need or want to learn a new behavior or skill, they are incompetent at it and unaware of just exactly how incompetent they really are at that behavior. For example, I may decide that I'd like to go bowling, although I've never tried it before. The second stage of learning something new is conscious incompetence. Once an awareness of the desire to learn the behavior arises, the awareness of incompetence soon follows. I throw my first ball and it goes in the gutter, as does the second, and even the third. I suddenly realize that I suck at bowling. The reluctance to go through this awkward, clumsy stage of learning is often the reason some people either won't try new things or drop out as soon as it gets tough. The third stage of learning something new is conscious competence. If I keep at it and I push through that initial stages of learning with the help of explicit memory, I start knocking down some pins and eventually get a spare or even a strike once in a while. As the new behavior is practiced repeatedly, skill is developed and in the next stage of learning becomes part of me through subconscious processing, making it a part of my implicit memory or my neural circuitry. The fourth stage of learning something new is unconscious competence. Once a certain level of proficiency is reached, the new behavior or routine becomes automatic or second nature. Now I can put a spin on the ball and make it do tricks as it rolls down the lane. This is because I've become one with the bowling ball. In other words, it becomes programmed into the neural networks of implicit memory. Conscious effort and these four stages of learning something new are what we have to rely upon to gain access and thaw out those frozen feeling states of childhood abandonment, shame, and contempt that we covered in the iceberg model. 
Therein lies our challenge. By now you've become aware that there's a significant difference between the storage and handling of data concerning self-preservation and information concerning self-actualization, growth mode. Data regarding survival is stored in the protected networks of the mind, while growth-oriented data is stored in an open, accessible network area called the thinking brain, or the outer cortical regions of the brain, which are constantly being updated. Every 15 minutes when we're learning something new, we're either recruiting unused dendrite connections or we're creating new ones. We need to apply daily discipline and conscious effort proceeding through the stages of learning something new in order to rewire survival strategies that have been subconsciously encoded and protected on the neural networks of self-preservation. But don't worry, it's a lot easier than it sounds. It will require a new way of life, however. Fortunately, this does not mean that we have to get rid of the old programming, such as fear of abandonment, obsessions and compulsions, toxic shame, toxic relationship patterns like the drama triangle, or punishment and forgiveness cycle, distance and pursuit games. Now, deleting this information regarding self-preservation is not the goal. Remember Hebe's Law, number two, use it or lose it. We just simply need to put our attention on growth and not on getting rid of these old networks. It's probably impossible to do that without surgery anyway. Hey, that is possible. They actually tried surgically altering the brain for a while. I think they called that a lobotomy. We don't do that here. But our methods are somewhat less invasive anyway. It will involve creating new alternatives on self-actualizing, that is, growth-oriented neural networks that will fill in the developmental gaps of unmet childhood dependency needs and initiate an ongoing healing process for those frozen feeling states of abandonment, shame, and contempt. In order to do this, we must develop the means and technology to communicate directly with our neurology. So there are some technologies of change that are really good at helping us do that. One must be able to zoom in and communicate with the primary neural circuits that are involved with a dysfunctional thought, behavior, or feeling. There are therapeutic technologies that are capable of helping us do this. The idea of parts of self or ego states and feeling states and so forth provide that technology. I borrow from the transactional analysis and the gestalt therapy and interfamily systems therapy and many other parts oriented therapies in order to create my integrative psychotherapy approach. We'll talk more about those in future podcasts. For now, let's get back to our current discussion, networking the brain. You probably already know that embedded within the internet are smaller networks like AOL or MSN. Inside those networks are even smaller networks, embedded in networks, embedded in networks, and so on, all the way down to two or three home computers that make up an average home network. The neural networks of our brain are structured in much the same way, although incredibly more complex and sophisticated. Inside this huge neural matrix are smaller neural networks, also known as cognitive maps, where clusters of neurons and dendrites are assigned to a particular behaviors, memories, beliefs, thought patterns, and so on. Dendrite and axon connections tie all the neurons together to make up the internet of the mind. Each neuron has an axon and as many as 100,000 dendrites. Axons are the part of the neuron that packages and, by way of an electrical impulse, 
sends chemicals called neurotransmitters out into a gap between an axon and the dendrites. The gap is known as a synapse. The dendrites are responsible for receiving the electrical chemical signals and sending them down the line into the cell body of the neuron that they are attached to. These neurotransmitters, or neurochemicals, contain bits of data. Hear, see, feel, taste, smell, sensory data. Dendrites receive that data, learning, in other words, and the axon sends the data, teaching. We begin creating and growing dendrite connections the moment we are conceived. Later on, we create dendrites for sitting up, walking, talking, reading, and so on. A network contains explicit and implicit data for all of the skills, knowledge, emotions, beliefs, physiology, motor skills, thoughts, memories, and experiences that have to do with that particular function or behavior. We have networks for identity and self-esteem. We have networks for how to drive a car, how to swim, how to be a good spouse, how to do our job. We weren't born with these networks. We had to create and grow them. For example, do you remember learning how to drive a car? Remember how nerve-wracking that was? All those things you had to learn, think about, and remember to do all at the same time. The rules of the road, when to hit the brake, dad teaching you to parallel park, starting and stopping on a hill with the clutch, taking your driver's test, flunking the test. Most of us were definitely not born with a driving network installed. But now, most of us can do those things in our sleep. How often have you driven from point A to B and not remembered the trip? Yep, we've become one with the vehicle. In other words, driving has become automatic because we've developed a very sophisticated driving neural network. My wife would disagree in my case. We also have limiting or unhealthy neural networks devoted to things like addiction or self-sabotage, phobias, anxieties, depression, and other unwanted feelings and behaviors. But the good news is that the subconscious mind can use a process known as synaptic pruning to rewire these unhelpful neural networks. It needs a little help from us, though. We've been talking about biological changes that must take place in the brain and central nervous system when we make a major life change. I'd like to tell you a story to explain this process of synaptic pruning, or this neurological change that we're looking for. It's highly recommended that if you have not already done so, to watch the videos on neuroplasticity, neural networks, and mental filters. If you get nothing more from those videos, there are four principles to keep in mind about neurological change. Number one, neurons that fire together wire together. Number two, use it or lose it. And number three and four, in order to encode a new neural network in the brain, it takes intensity and repetition. Let me give you an example of how we go about changing a complex neural network that we've been living with intensity and repetition over and over again for years, if not decades. So I call this one zebras and giraffes. It's a story about a woman who comes to counseling. She's alcoholic, 45 years old. Her third husband just left her over her drinking. She lives in a small town and she reaches out to the only counselor there. The counselor's not sure he's going to be able to help her because they've had a history together. She's been into counseling for a couple of different episodes due to her alcoholism. Nothing's ever gotten her attention well enough to make any of the changes she needs to make. 
This time was different, though, and she told him that. She said, I can't take it anymore. I can't continue on this way. I can't get a job. I'm going to lose my car. I don't have any support. I've burned all my bridges. You've got to help me. So the counselor says, okay, we'll give it another try. But you have to make this agreement with me. She said, what's that? He said, you need to go down the street to this AA meeting here three times a week and come and see me once a week. She goes, oh, no, you don't understand. I don't do groups like that. And he says, yes, I understand. And I know you don't do groups like that. But if I'm going to be able to help you, we need the support of those people down there who've been there and done that, the people who've walked the walk and have gotten through this before. So she agrees to go. She doesn't feel like she belongs in one of those meetings. And when she walks in the door, she discovers that she was absolutely 100% correct. She doesn't belong there. She's like a zebra walking into a room full of giraffes. That's because she's been hanging out at the bar down at the other end of the street for decades. That's where all the other zebras hang out. Everybody knows her name down there and she knows them. They all have mental filters that are set up to support their ability to keep drinking, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that says, that's not good for you. Now she walks into this room full of giraffes. Not only do these people not have the same mental filters as hers, they have mental filters that are diametrically opposed to hers. Their mental filters are set up for sobriety. They're always talking about how wonderful it is to be able to get through the day without a drink or to get through the day not even having a thought of a drink. She can't understand that. She can't understand how that makes them happy. But she keeps going anyway because she promised that she would. So three or four weeks go by and nothing really happens. She does notice though that this woman across the table from her used to be a zebra. Now she's a giraffe. That got her curiosity going. Then she listened to other people there, and they sounded like they used to be zebras. Now they're giraffes. How did that happen? If it happened for them, maybe it'll happen for me. She started to get her hopes up, so she keeps going. Then one day, about three months later, the bank calls. They're coming to get her car. She hasn't been able to get a job. Everybody knows her reputation. She's unemployable. She hasn't been able to keep her payments up on the car. They have to come and repo it. She lives in that small town, and everybody knows her reputation. She's burned all the bridges with family and friends. Nobody will give her a loan or help her out. Now they're going to come and get that car. She won't even have a way to get around or even get to those meetings or the counselor's office. So she's freaking out. She's having a bad day. She walks into the room of her AA meeting that night, sits down at the table, and listens again as everyone sits there giggling and laughing and having a good time. It's starting to really irritate her because things are only getting worse for her and she's been going for three months. So eventually she just slams her coffee cup down on the table and says, I don't understand you people. How do you keep so happy in the midst of all this? And they asked her what has been going on. She told them that the bank is coming to get her car. She doesn't even know how she's going to be able to get there anymore. Nobody's going to be there for her. She doesn't have any friends and on and on and on. And then she heard someone giggling in the back of the room. That was really offensive to her. So she turned around and that person says, Oh, I'm sorry, don't mind me. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at me. I've been where you are. So she asks, What do you mean you know? 
I've been coming here for almost three months now. Nothing's changed. They told her that's why some people there were giggling. Because you can't just come in and sit at the meeting and hope for things to change. This is a program of action. You have to take what you hear here and use it. Apply it in your life out there to see what recovery skills and tools will work for you. She rolls her eyes and says, great. Well, then tell me, what tool do you think is going to help when they come and get my car tomorrow? What do I do? They said, well, you've done everything you can do. It doesn't sound like there's anything else you can do. So in that case, we suggest using the tool of letting it go and turning it over to your higher power. It's no longer your problem. It's his problem. She doesn't see how that's going to work, but she has no other choice. She goes home, gets down on her knees right before bed, tells God everything that's been going on. She said, they told me at that meeting I need to come and give this to you. I know that I'm a burden and I don't want to be that for you, but I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to do what they told me. Then she crawled up in the bed, went to sleep, and had the best night's sleep ever. She even got up the next day feeling refreshed, invigorated, and strangely happy. Even though they were coming to get her car today, she cleaned the house, ate breakfast, went out to get the mail, and when she opened the mailbox, she found something that was quite surprising to her. Oh boy, on top of everything, here's a letter from the IRS. She opened the letter and began to read. It said, We've been auditing your taxes for the last five years and found that we've made a couple of mistakes and that you have a refund coming. So they included the check. She was stunned to find out that the check was for the exact amount that would pay off the last three months of her car and the next three months ahead. Needless to say, that was a stunning experience for her and the intensity of it burned a neural network into her brain instantly that says, wow, this turning it over and letting it go really works. She was so excited when she returned for her next AA meeting that she told them all about it. They giggled and laughed and had a good time and talked about how wonderful recovery is. From that point on, she did everything they told her to do. She gathered more and more tools, tried them out, found several that worked really well for her. She couldn't get enough AA. After that, she didn't have to go anymore. She wanted to go. She had become a giraffe. Then one day, in walks another zebra. This is a story that's a good example of how to make changes in your neural circuitry, especially if you're dealing with a very complex and sophisticated issue like addiction. This lady had decades-long alcoholism and failure after failure in her marriages. She had a lot of intensity and repetition that built up a very sophisticated network to support her ability to continue drinking. She went to her AA meeting and felt totally out of sorts because she did not have the neural circuitry that they did. She didn't have the experience to create any of that neural circuitry for recovery. But as she stayed there, things began to happen, especially when she started taking action. Because when you take action, you find out if something works. When it works, then you have an intense experience, and that starts connecting neural circuits together. I believe that's one of the biggest reasons that 12-step programs work so well. They're spiritual in nature, and when you have a spiritual experience, like this lady had, then it can be very intense, like 9-11 intense, and that can burn something into the brain very quickly. People often ask me, how long do I need to keep going to these meetings, or how long do I need to keep coming to therapy? 
I tell them, only until you want to. Then you never have to again. Thanks for listening. I hope this has been helpful to you. If you'd like regular email notices of new material that we publish, click the subscribe button and enter your best email.